Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. State of the city, from housing to safety to no fireworks on Canada Day. Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joins us. Plus, why has the 15-minute city idea been turned into one giant conspiracy? And Tourist at Home author Harold Coleman joins us to discuss his new book, Exploring Vancouver. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on the largest city in Metro Vancouver at this moment. Joining me now is Ken Sim. Mr. Sim was sworn in as the 41st mayor of Vancouver on November 7th last year. His ABC majority slate was elected on a platform focusing on affordability, public safety, and mental health and addictions. And since then has also promised to bring the city swagger back as well. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in. Yeah. Welcome aboard, Mr. Sim. Oh, come on, Jazz. I thought we were on a first name basis now. Sure. Welcome right. aboard. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, so are you enjoying it? You know what? I I love it. I really do. And uh, uh, just to be very clear, I I didn't... When I ran for office, the reason I did was uh, my four boys, our four boys don't see a, a future for themselves in Vancouver. Yeah. And so I was willing to, you know, do a job that I thought would be actually uh, terrible. Um, You're uh, expecting it wasn't going to be fun. I thought it would suck. Um, for the most part, um, yeah. but to, you know, maybe twenty percent of it would be great. And the, why did you think it was going to suck? Well, you just saw what happened in the council before, and the bickering and the fighting, and how mm. things didn't get uh, done. And you know, people, there's this preconceived notion that uh, you know government is slow and it's painful, and and so I thought it'd be terrible. But uh, the complete opposite. I I love probably ninety percent of what we get to do and uh, the interactions that we have. Um, and so it's it's been incredible, and it's very humbling. It's, it's an honor to actually have this uh, role um, amongst my team, and um, it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, let's focus on some of the the challenges uh, that are before you. There are always challenges before any elected official, especially when you're mayor of Vancouver. Recently, uh, the Port of Vancouver said announced uh, the many uh, events that will be occurring during Canada Day. One of the things that wouldn't be occurring uh, are the fireworks, and there's a trend of disappointment that's certainly sensed on this show from our callers. Can that be changed? Do you have any desire to change that? Oh, yeah, we, we do have a desire to change it. Um, we've been working on it, but uh, I, I do want to put out that, uh, first of all, it was a Port of Vancouver-run uh, event, and uh, we, as the city of Vancouver, we should be very thankful that they stepped up in the past, uh, ran into some challenges, and, you know, we don't know what the end result's going to be this year, but I can tell you um, we're going to ask, uh, be it the Port of Vancouver or any other group, um, if they're willing to step up and help us with it going forward, we'd love their support. So can that be... Can, will there be fireworks this July 1st or is it too late? Uh, it might be too late just because the runway is really short and it's not even, um, there's a financial aspect to it, but there's also a logistical aspect to it. Okay, so but you are at least as a city working towards potentially bringing back fireworks next year then? That's the plan or yeah. the hope? Yeah, that's the hope. Um, and I, 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 you know, I kind of box myself, uh, paint myself into a corner here, but I, I, I'm very hopeful that it will be there next year because uh, the financial commitment in the whole scheme of things isn't significant uh, for, you know, the right uh, group to step up. Yeah. Um, this year we have some logistical challenges, so I, I'm not going to say it's it's done, um, but it, it's it's unlikely that we're going to see the fireworks uh, on Canada Day. Yeah. The uh, reason I say that, it's just, it's, um, uh, when you talk about a world-class city, wanting to bring the city swagger back, and I know it's not the city's decision, but there's something odd about 
shutting down Canada Day or the events ending by 6 p.m. and everybody go home after that when you want to be encouraging people to come to Vancouver, spend some money at the restaurants in the evenings, enjoy downtown Vancouver, all of that kind of stuff, though. Yeah, and, and look, we're, we're all on the same page. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, we're, you play the cards that you're dealt. And if we had a little more runway, it could have looked different. But uh, you know what? Uh, we uh, put it uh, in our databanks uh, yep. going forward, but it also uh, helps us, you know, as we're projecting forward, we shouldn't take any of these events for granted. And, you know, what are the other iconic events that we want to make sure uh, survive and thrive going forward? So we're not hit with something with, you know, five or six weeks notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's focus on uh, another issue in the city, safety, security, mental health and addiction. On April 5th, the city shut down parts of East Hastings Street. The garbage trucks moved in into the area. Police took down tents and makeshift homes. Uh, The Vancouver Sun reporter Nathan Griffin reported uh, in the last few days that internal emails at Vancouver City Hall in the days leading up to the uh, April dismantling of the encampment showed that there would be not enough beds to shelter people who were displaced. Um, Were you aware of that, number one, and did you decide to go ahead with it anyway because it needed to be done? What was the sort of thinking behind the scenes? Okay, there's probably about three uh, different things that we have to cover. So first of all, uh, we did make sure that there was enough, you know, and I can't comment as to, you know, uh, what was in those emails, but I can tell you on the day of, uh, we were on the phone with the province, with BC Housing, uh, looking around, and there was you know, there was enough housing there. Um, maybe not right directly in, you know, two blocks away from the downtown east side, but throughout the system. Um, we In we, Vancouver. Yeah, in Vancouver. And so if you look at actually what happened, every single person that put up their hands uh, uh, for uh, housing got it on April 5th and April 6th. And so... Were you aware of that before the police moved in? I mean, was that conversation occurring beforehand saying, look, we're going to be moving these all these people... Uh, we better have homes for them. And you're telling me that you had enough already before you moved in? Yeah, we felt very confident. And so to give you some okay. context, eight months before April 5th, we had been working on, you know, very... And this this happened during the previous administration. That's when it started. And it was the City of Vancouver-led, uh, City of Vancouver Engineering-led um, initiative with support through uh, with the rest of the city. But... Um, very empathetically and compassionately, we were looking for housing solutions for everyone and we were offering people housing. And I forget the actual numbers, but I think 97 or so, like, I, actually, I don't want to quote the numbers because I know I'm going to get them wrong. I don't have the data in front of me, but, you know, every, uh, we housed a lot of people. And then for about two months leading up to April 5th, um, basically people um, didn't want housing. Like they, they would refuse it. Uh, a week before April 5th, uh, we, we put the notice out um, that we're going to uh, be removing structures because now it wasn't an issue about homelessness. It was public safety. And I can talk about all the challenges we had, you know, um, uh, the organized crime that was in um, uh, the area, you know, um, um, Mexican drug cartel, uh, Haitian gangs, organized crime from Ontario. The list goes on and on. I can talk about the 50 women that were surveyed by Atira, uh, 50 uh, women, um, all of whom had been assaulted and sexually insulted and all 50 who did not feel safe. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the, the weapons we're pulling out. That, you know, we should be removing those structures for that reason. But, but, the but big, the, part of your decision-making yeah. was just that, in regards to saying there was immediate issues, immediate challenges that, in regards to public safety That's security. A big, the biggest challenge, and we were enforcing a fire bylaw. Uh, we pulled out over 2,000 propane tanks, including 100-pounders. And I, I want the audience to imagine um, if one of these tanks uh, on the 100-pounders, if the safety devices uh, failed, 
uh, an explosion would take out a whole city block. And so now you're not talking about people being displaced. You're talking about, you know, hundreds of people could have died. Best case scenario is if one of those uh, devices went off, um, no one gets harmed, but you lose hundreds of units of housing stock. And so we, we had to. It would be irresponsible not to do it. And my question for, to every single person um, who felt strongly against what we did, what would they do differently? Do you think the city is safer today um, since you've been mayor, or do you have more work to do? Oh, well, first of all, we have more work to do. So let's be very clear about that. Um, and you can look at the data um, and form your own opinion, um, but it doesn't even matter about that. It's whether or not people feel safe. And so we still have a lot of work to do. What I can tell you on the downtown east side, people do feel safer. And we're getting, first of all, it is safer. We still have work to do. But when you remove all those, you know, um, structures that were, um, you know, causing, you know, uh, safety concerns, Right there, we know we're safer. Uh, when you speak with, like, people are coming out of the SROs um, and different um, housing, um, you know, um, situations in the downtown east side, and they're coming down and they're thanking our, um, you know, our engineering crews and our uh, firefighters and our police officers because uh, they feel safer as well. But, yeah, we, we still have a lot of work to do. We are speaking to Ken Sim, uh, mayor of Vancouver. Lots of issues uh, on the table here. We were talking a little bit about uh, safety and security, mental health and addiction. We talked about fireworks on Canada Day. Let's talk about the other issue, um, Ken, which is, of course, housing. Uh, Vancouver uh, was on the so-called naughty list. Um, does this change um, how you, as a council, move forward in regards to approvals, or is this just a case or a catalyst for you to just move a lot faster? Does this change anything when you were on the naughty list along with the Deltas and and North Van District and many other communities, the top 10? um, Is this now going to change things at City Hall in regards to approvals? No, nothing at all. You know, we came in and we made it very clear um, we need to build more faster. And so that doesn't change. And I think it's actually great. Let's uh, call it what it is. Um, Vancouver has been a tough place to, you know, get a permit. Like you have to wait whatever, six to 12 years to get a permit to build something substantial. And that's just not acceptable. And so we actually like being on the list. I know that's a little counterintuitive. Um, You know, it it highlights the fact that we can do a better job and we're going to do a better job. When can citizens and business leaders and developers see progress from City Hall, literally to come in and put, uh, you know, walk in with a proposal? Like, when can you noticeably see progress from from City Hall? When should people start judging City Hall on that? Well, I I would say give us a bit of time. Some things are already happening. Um, So if you look at um, the projects that have come to council, um, I don't think we, I, I think we've approved every single one. And so that's in the works. Um, and we're, we take it with the view of if something makes sense for the city over the next 30 years, we're going to do it. And so um, while there might be some vocal minority in the neighborhood um, that are concerned, we have to look for the greater good of the city. And so mm-hmm. that, that's been an attitudinal shift. Anecdotally, I, I know some people have challenges still, but what we're starting to hear are some really good stories as well as, you know, um, now we're getting, you know, and like I said, this is anecdotal, mm-hmm. um, but people having ex- experiences now where they got their permits a lot faster than they're expecting. 
Um, so, but a, a lot of work still has to be done and we are, you know, we're tackling it every single day at the city of Vancouver. The development issue is not just a Vancouver issue. Greater density uh, impacts uh, livability and the character of neighborhoods. So that's an ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. Now add to that the broader issue of reconciliation, uh, specifically in regards to uh, what we see in Vancouver. It's the Sinoc development is one where you do have to work with the city, but ultimately these are First Nations lands. You also have uh, Jericho lands and uh, the initial uh, view and proposal being introduced, I think, publicly on June 16th this month. Mm-hmm. Um, these two proposals, uh, in many ways, can change the face of Vancouver, uh, can lead to greater density, tremendous amount of concern from residents in and around those areas as well. Uh, are you generally supportive of both, or, or is there, do you think, a way for non-First Nations communities in and around those two proposals to have a greater say in regards to how they're built? Because ultimately the concern is there's so much density that Mm -hmm. doesn't generally fit what you would have in Vancouver, and the worry is it changes the character of neighbourhoods. How do you view those types of developments within the context of the city? Yeah, and once again, we take a longer-term view. First of all, it's the right thing to do. Um, So at Sanok, first of all, it's Squamish uh, territory, and um, uh, sorry, uh, MST. And so we we support it. Um, I'm actually, and I say I, um, I'm actually very excited that it's happening. And we hope that it succeeds because it can actually show the rest of, uh, you know, the city of Vancouver and the region how you can build a lot faster. And we are going to bring in incre- like a, a large number of units. What is it, like 6,000 uh, units mm-hmm. uh, to the city? And, you know, we need that housing. And so the conversation is how do we work better with, uh, you know, MST to make sure that it's a, that it's a success. And so we're going to be um, incredibly enthusiastic partners on that. Uh, when it comes to Jericho, yeah, like, um, you know, uh, the residents of Vancouver can have a say, uh, but make no mistake about it. I think we have an uh, incredible opportunity to paint an incredible future. Do you uh, have a role to sell those projects or do you think that's um, up, up to the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations? Because there is going to be, in any development, concern, opposition, but the people selling it, discussing, conversing, uh, and, 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 and to residents. Is that your job or is that MS, MST's job? Well, I, I think uh, as uh, mayor and council, we have two roles. One, to make sure that, you know, that we represent the, the residents of the city of Vancouver. Um, and we make sure that, you know, we have, like, the, our, the city of Vancouver's voices are heard when it comes to the development of that project. Two, we have a responsibility to be great partners with MST. Uh, and three, we have a responsibility to make sure that these projects work for the future of the city of Vancouver. And so when I see uh, Jericho, I, I look at the future. I see community centres. I see daycares. I see, you know, uh, restaurants and schools. And I see the ability... Uh, I have these conversations all the time where, where you know, you, you'll have um, an elderly couple in, let's say, Dunbar um, who would love to downsize and stay in the neighbourhood. The downsizing is easy, but there's nowhere to go, and all their friends are leaving the region as well. And if we had Jericho built, they could actually stay in the region, and they can actually stay in the region where their kids may have their families. And so these are opportunities, and I, I, we, we fully support them. Ken, we've run out of time. Look forward to having you on very soon again. Thank you so much. Jazz, thank you very much. 
Now, you've probably heard of the term a 15-minute city. It's not new. It was actually a term uh, first coined by a university professor, uh, Carlos Mourinho, uh, in Paris, France, back in 2016. And the concept is a simple one. Basically, residents should be able to walk or bike to work, uh, buy their groceries, uh, visit their doctors, go to the bank uh, in approximately 15 minutes. So your life uh, the basics of life should be in and around your home uh, within 15 minutes or so. Now, today, the president of Remax Canada, Christopher Alexander, wrote an op-ed uh, in the Globe and Mail. Uh, he talked about, obviously, Canada needing more housing inventory, but he also uh, talked about the 15-minute city and how much he supported it. Uh, a study by TomTom revealed that Canadians spend about approximately 144 hours in rush hour traffic across the country uh, in 2022. Now, in 2023, a Leger poll, which was commissioned by Remax, said that about one in four Canadians believe that reducing commute times to 15 minutes or less would improve their quality of life. Uh, joining me now to talk about the issue is Councillor Nadine Nakagawa. She, along with her colleague Tasha Henderson, have put forward a motion asking uh, the City of New Westminster to endorse the concept of, of becoming a 15-minute city and create a plan to implement it by 2030. Nadine, Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. So as a city councillor, I'm sure I know you've heard of this term before. Why now did you want to bring it forward? Well, my colleague Tasha and I were invited by a middle school activist club to uh, come and talk with them about, you know, the issues that they see as top priorities for cities. Mm -hmm. And this was actually a motion and an idea that they brought to us. And a lot of the issues are things that we're already dealing with, you know, making our city, um, you know, having the business districts support local business economy, having, you know, safe walking and cycling in our communities. So a lot of those things we're already supporting, but they brought it all together in this this package, this idea of a 15-minute city. And so when the youth tell you that this is the kind of community that they want to live in, you know, you have to sit up and take notice because really we're building cities for the future. Now, New Westminster is a pretty compact city. Uh, how many, how, in regards to change, how much change is actually required? Well, yeah, New West is pretty geographically small. There's no doubt. But I think if we actually take this as more of like a planning concept rather than a literal concept, um, then what it means is that in every neighborhood in our city, what we want is we want local businesses Um, You know, places that you can get your groceries. We want daycare centers. We want active transportation opportunities for folks. We want people to be able to meet their needs really close to home. And so, you know, that's pretty close to being the case in the city of New West, across the city. But not not true for all neighborhoods in our community. Um, But we just really want to further embed that idea and make sure that we're that we're meeting everyone's needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some pushback in the last couple of years, and we always uh, find uh, a reason to complain about things. But there are those who felt look feel that it look it's it, it speaks to greater government involvement, um, and it's maybe it's an, it's imagined it's a conspiracy theory that one day citizens may be monitored and 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 uh, government could find people when they basically said, look, you should only be shopping in and around your own community to deal with congestion. Perhaps. I don't know. But there is sort of this vast conspiracy theory out there that this is just the start of something uh, much more sinister when it comes to government. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, to be honest, I, I'm really not paying that much attention to it mm. because we can find all sorts of reasons, you know, that 
to, to think about things in a, in a very weird way. But at the end of the day, like who doesn't want a local pub? Who doesn't want a local green grocer? Um, who doesn't want a park by their house? Um, this is really about building a more positive community for everybody. It's a really, really positive motion. It's the kind of community that people that I want to live in. It's the kind of community that my neighbors tell me they want to live in. Mm-hmm. And again, the young people are the ones who are saying this is what we need. So I think it's really focusing on the positive about this and not getting too caught up in the in the conspiracy theories. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm curious Like most people have said, look, uh, density is what we need in the city. But there's obviously going to be pushback because many people do not want the character of their neighborhood uh, changed. Are you dealing with some of that in New Westminster as well? Uh, I know Vancouver is certainly dealing with that and there's going to be even greater conversation. I just had the mayor of Vancouver on at 3 o'clock and we were talking a little bit about the Synoc development on the um, south side of the Broad Street Bridge. Uh, There's going to be greater conversations about how the Jericho lands are developed in in the next few weeks uh, as that uh, project uh, uh, is uh, is publicized even more so. Um, are, are you sensing or getting pushback as well from people who say, look, density is well and good, but not in my backyard or do not change my neighborhood in a, in, in a significant way? Oh, for sure. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation, I think, in all of our communities. And New West is pretty dense. If you haven't come by lately, especially around our SkyTrain areas, we're, we're a pretty dense community. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're thinking about that density, this is exactly the conversation that we need to have, is that what amenities then we do we need to support that density? Uh, we don't have a lot of unused area in New West. It's a pretty built-out city. But in the areas that we do have, um, that we can build more density in or, or in every neighborhood. I think we need to be thinking about, well, where are people going to shop? Where are they going to get their medication? What is that green space like? Knowing how much that impacts mental health, having access to the outdoors, um, cooling in the hot, hot summers that we're having. So I, I think absolutely this is exactly the heart of the conversation is, yes, there is density. There are more people coming to our neighborhoods. We have a housing affordability crisis. So how do we build these neighborhoods in a way that, they're a real pleasure to live in. So if, if, when you talk about the 15-minute city, does that, would that include more public washrooms, public Wi-Fi, more bike lanes, uh, even potentially not having cars on certain roads? Is that part of the conversation then? Yeah, I think all of those things are on the table. And I was really happy when the youth came to talk to us that they absolutely said, yeah, we need public washrooms, we need benches. Uh, we need trees. We need all these things. Um, so I think all of some of them are, you know, fairly easy to implement. Benches a lot more, uh, a lot less complicated than washrooms, for example. But certainly, I think all of that has to be a, as part of the conversation. And when we're talking about streets and access to streets, it's making sure that again everyone in our community can get around comfortably. Um, so that includes cycling. That includes rolling. Uh, you know, and all the new modes of transportation that are emerging too. Do you think your idea of a 15-minute city, never mind it being implemented in a compact city like um, in a New Westminster, do you think a 15-minute city uh, can be implemented um, in a significant way in the city of Vancouver or, or a city like Surrey, that is, especially Surrey, which is much more car-dependent? Well, hey, I don't want to speak for the Surrey City <laughs> Councillors or the Vancouver City Councillors, but that... Uh, You know, I think that, in fact, this principle is even more needed in in other municipalities that don't already have the kind of complete neighbourhoods and the the amenities that New West has in each neighbourhood. So I think it's certainly something that we can have a conversation about and obviously up to them. But again, what I hear from people is that they don't want to have to have a car, which is very expensive. Not not everyone can have that. um, And drive really, really far to get their basic needs met. That's not 
that's not a great lifestyle for creating community connection. It's not good for our mental health and well-being. Um, so, I, I mean, certainly uh, the residents of Surrey and Vancouver are welcome to bring it up to their their city councillors, just as people brought it to us. But, um, yeah, it would be really interesting collaborating with them on that. Uh, Ms. Nakagawa, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Well, starting in 2025, commercial photographers will need an annual permit, which will cost $400 to take pictures in Metro Vancouver uh, Regional Park. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Jazz Gill. She's a photographer at Savin Photography. She started an online petition against the guidelines. Jazz, thank you for joining us today. Hi there. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So talk to me a little bit about your concerns. Uh, someone here is $400. Government wants uh, uh, photographers to, to, to pay for this yearly permit. Uh, what is your opposition to that? So I've actually spoken to a lot of the photographers in the Lower Mainland. Um, we are trying to spread awareness all over social media. And the concerns that we have are that, number one, there's actually no data that they can show us um it was printed actually in an article for cbc um by jeremy plotkin who is a supervisor of visitor services for metro vancouver parks and he himself says that staff have observed some photographers that are going off the trails but they don't have the exact number of complaints and that's unknown and that's word for word what he has said so that's number one that's our concern is how can you blame just photographers for Uh, disturbing the wildlife or destroying the habitat. Um, Like, I understand that there might be a few, but to label all the photographers. And on top of that, we also have hikers and families and tourists that come to these parks. Um, How come they're not also being held accountable? Mm -hmm. So, And it's affecting our business at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, these permits that the the, uh, authorities are talking about, basically you would go in, apply for the permit, and it would be uh, valid from January 1st to December 31st. So it would be a yearly permit of $400. Do other jurisdictions, do you know of any other jurisdictions in Canada that that does this? Um, I have never heard of any other jurisdictions in Canada that have done this. Neither have photographers um, that I've spoken to around the Lower Mainland, which is actually quite a few. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to point out when you're saying that um, we can just go in and get the permit, it's actually not that easy. Um, I've gotten a permit uh, a few years ago when I wanted to just set up a couch so I could get some um, family uh, photo photo shoots in there. Mm -hmm. And it took me a very long time. And I've actually read up online of other photographers experiencing the same thing um, where they will um, send you somewhere else and then to the next person. And you're trying you're going back and forth for weeks trying to get a permit. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you say to the argument that, look, um, one only has to look at wedding uh, photo packages today. They're not cheap. They never have been. And you're hiring professionals to do really good work. And these pictures you're going to look at for the rest of your life. Uh, this is yeah. the very nature of what you're taking. These aren't just things you take off pictures uh, on your iPhone. You're hiring professionals with, who have equipment and everything else. Um, the, these packages aren't cheap. The photographers do make a living off of this. And that taxpayers 
should uh, at least um, charge a small fee uh, for the uh, ability to film on public property. We would do that for movies. We would do that for TV shows. Why not for commercial photographers? And like I said, $400 compared to, let's say, what a wedding package probably costs. I have no idea today, but they're not cheap, of course, and, and they're important for pictures. What's wrong with just $400? So the issue here is that um, we are not like high-end photographers. There's a there's so many of us that are just trying to. We started off as a hobby, and now we're trying to make a living as it uh, off of it. Whether it's um, a side mis- business that we started, and then now we've taken it on um, full time. But they forget that just like every other job, we do have expenses, and camera gear is not cheap. We have to. Um, always be updating. We have websites to pay for. We have apps to pay for. There's so many purchases that we have to pay for. And we're just trying to, and us photographers that are not those high end photographers, like for TV shows, like those videographers and stuff, and they're getting paid by actors or producers and stuff. Our fees are actually not that high. And at the end of the day, this affects our clients because we already pay so much for our equipment and stuff. And we would have to charge our clients more. And they're also upset. So many have commented on certain pages for news articles saying that this is absurd. Uh, I'm curious. Um, so the Metro Vancouver Regional District manages just almost 14,000 acres of parkland. There's about 23 parks. Um, and they said they're, they're introducing the permits to, so, to help um, keep the parks pristine and protect wildlife. I'm not sure how $400 does that. But uh, th- that's what they're saying. I'm curious, of those 23 parks, are there, what are the most popular parks that generally photographers go to here in the Lower Mainland? The number one most popular one is definitely um, Campbell Valley Park. It's a very versatile park that a lot of our clients do like, whether they want forestry, whether they want fields, whether they want grass in the background, or they want bridges. Um, it has also an undercover area, which is a gazebo um, I've been going there for a few years now. I've never seen any damage or any sort of that. And I agree, it's um, $400. I'm not sure how they're going to uh, make sure that these parks stay pristine. And are we going to get uh, more fines if they see that like a tourist or a hiker makes a mess or disturbs the wildlife, do we also get that backlash as well? How much time do you spend in the park to take pictures? This is in a couple of hours. Like you probably have done many of these. You're in and out in two or three hours, roughly? Oh, less than that. Like if I have a session, it's usually 20 to 30 minutes. Um, If I have, let's say, back-to-back sessions, most an hour. And I guess on the weekends, obviously, there must be many, many brides there, uh, grooms, groom and, and bride, and getting their pictures taken with family. I'm just wondering, um, is it? do you think a question of maybe too many photographers or people of hired photographers in one or two parks that are really popular, that may be part of the challenge? Or, or is it, do you think th- this is more than just, you know, uh, Campbell Valley, which is based in Langley? Um, Yeah, I definitely think it's um, with all the parts are being affected. But for my personal experience, anytime I've gone to Campbell Valley Park to whether it's on the weekdays in the evenings or on the weekends, I might run into maybe maximum two other photographers across the entire park. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll be and that park is very, very big. It's very large. There's so many places to photograph um so yeah the most i'll run into is either no one maybe one other photographer i'll say hi or two 
I've never seen it super busy. Um, I We do understand where um, the other restrictions are, where it says no smoking, no alcohol, no drones, no large equipment. That's something we all agree with. We're just trying to make them understand that there's no proof that we are leaving the mess behind or or we should be held liable for these strangers coming in and making a mess or disturbing the wildlife. Are most photographers, you're saying some of them started off as a hobby and then others worked their way to a full-fledged business. Are most photographers that are going to these parks, or would you say most of them are full-fledged businesses or these folks that perhaps may not have a business license, maybe just starting out, uh, that sort of thing? Or, or, or are most wedding photographers still registered businesses and small businesses? Um, when it comes to these particular parts that they've named, um, it's mostly photographers that are just starting out or just starting out as a hobby or they do it like part-time on the side, make a few extra cash, you know, things are getting expensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe they've just transferred or transitioned, sorry, into full-time photography. Um, usually I've noticed that these uh, high-end wedding photographers end up going to downtown with these large buildings and stuff or they hire um or they, sorry, book studios and stuff. So when it comes to the parks, it's usually like the the average photographer is uh, just trying to make a living or just doing it for a hobby or it's on the side. So if, if this does go in, it also seems to me it says that those are trying to get into the business or starting out as a hobby or doing it, you know, casually or semi-part-time, uh, they, they would need to get a permit, but you can't get a permit until you probably have a business license. Exactly. So it's affecting quite a few photographers. The amount that I've seen since the last article got posted and this news got out, there's many, many photographers trying to bring awareness and trying to spread my petition that I've started. Um, We've already gotten to, in just a few days, 1,695 signatures, 96, sorry now, but yeah. Jazz, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, our next guest today spoke along with other provincial officials. Uh, they spoke together to counter harmful claims uh, made around the toxic drug, drug crisis. And some of the claims, uh, my, my comments, not anybody else's, that uh, elected officials have made federally and provincially in and around uh, this conversation. Joining me to talk a little bit about uh, the unregulated drug deaths that we're seeing here in British Columbia is Lisa LaPointe, BC's chief coroner. Ms. LaPointe, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, why was it important for you, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and many other uh, leaders today to come out uh, to speak on this issue? We felt that it was really important that the public was up to date with all of the facts as we know them around the drug toxicity crisis. Um, sometimes in political rhetoric, uh, statements get thrown around and they they start to take on a life of their own and then they become... Um, fact. And and we were hearing things that concerned us. And so we thought it was a good time to get together, um, hold a a small media event and say, here's what we're seeing, here's what we're doing. And and to provide some reassurance that where there are any issues or concerns, there are multiple agencies evaluating and gathering evidence. Do you think what you've done today will have that impact? Because one would argue that we are 
pretty much still in the midst of a very polarized political environment. Add to that uh, what we are seeing in our streets in a post-COVID environment in regards to safety and security, that this seems to be a low-hanging fruit for, for some elected officials and, and activists and, and many others to, to focus on this issue and at times even scapegoat some individuals in regards to what's happening. Do you think what you've done today and continue to do will have that impact in regards to perhaps having a much more um, perhaps a fact-based and scientific-based conversation? Well, we do hope so. We, you know, we have heard some of the comments that have been made and some of the claims that have been made about the crisis. Um, it is unfortunate, and I know Dr. Henry and uh, Dr. Charlesworth both spoke to this, that some of the concerns around public safety have been conflated with the drug toxicity crisis. And in fact, the truth is that the, the people most harmed by the drug toxicity crisis are those who are using the substances. The illicit drug market we know is is highly uh, toxic and very dangerous, and we know that six people are dying every day. So that is a real public safety concern that that we see in our work every day. Um, You know, it's really important that uh, we, we recognize that this crisis has been going on in our province since 2016. It has been a fentanyl crisis. It is illicit fentanyl that is sold on the profit-driven black market. And um, there's been many, many discussions, and uh, we've held two death review panels. There was an all-party select standing committee on health that that met with and reviewed numerous submissions. And uh, the consensus throughout this has been this is a massive crisis. It's a public health issue affecting tens of thousands of people in our province. Over 100,000 people um, are believed to have opioid use disorder. And uh, we need a broad-based, comprehensive response. And trying to dig into camps where one thing or the other or the other has really not been helpful. And what's needed is harm reduction efforts, uh, drug checking efforts, naloxone, treatment that's evidence-based and available when people need it, and then safer supply for those who are at risk of death. Because mm-hmm. um, as much as we, you know, we certainly it would be better if people didn't access the illicit drug supply. We know that people do, and we can see by the numbers that people are dying. Now, one of the issues um, that has been front and center, or the conversation has been, uh, that some have been pushing is that hydromorphone uh, that was prescribed through the province's uh, safe supply program is flooding the streets. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I can. And we spoke to that today. So the vast majority of hydromorphone that is prescribed in our province is prescribed for pain management um, for all sorts of different reasons, cancer patients um, and other people experiencing significant pain. Only a very small percentage of hydromorphone prescribed is prescribed under the Safer Supply Program. So it's, you know, that we, we've heard the assertions that Safer Supply um, is flooding the streets. Um, we certainly want to listen to concerns of clinicians. And where clinicians have, have spoken to Bonnie Henry or Dr. Henry or have spoken to me, uh, we don't discount those. And that's why Dr. Henry said today, you know, she's going to be reviewing with, with a number of different groups 
the guidelines around safer consumption, uh, sorry, sorry, safer supply prescribing, or is it meeting people's needs, uh, perhaps needs some changes? And certainly as a coroner service, we are keeping a very close eye on the data to see if hydromorphone is having any impact on the crisis. From where I sit, uh, uh, it seems like there is a polarized conversation going on, which basically says, let's focus on treatment centers, less on decriminalization and safe supply. Uh, that it's one versus the other. And others have said, look at the policy that Alberta is doing is where we should be focusing on. And we've had, uh, you know, at least one of our federal leaders, I think Pierre Polyev, pushing that. Uh, and even here locally. And others here locally saying, some here as well, saying, look, that's what the focus should be on, not on safe supply and de- decriminalization. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, uh, one could argue, could you not do both? And, and is that something we need to be focusing on, not just what we're doing now here in British Columbia? perhaps budgets, bigger budgets over the long term on treatment centers as well. Well, absolutely. And that was the message that all four of us tried to give today is that this cannot be an either or situation. Absolutely. Treatment, enhanced treatment, evidence-based treatment when and where people need it is essential. But we also realize that there are 100,000 people with opioid use disorder in our province. Um, treatment, um, There is a dearth of data around treatment. So um, depending on the type of treatment, uh, there may or may not be uh, any reporting requirements. So some of the residential treatments that that you may be aware of, the recovery services, there's no reporting requirements for those. So we actually don't know when people access those services what their outcomes are. We don't know how many people are accessing that. So that's a real gap in the data that we need to address and our death review panel has recommended. Um, But definitely treatment is essential, but with 100,000 people at risk of dying at any given time from this uh, toxic drug market, if we can't remove people uh, from their reliance on the black market, we will continue to see deaths at the rate we have seen them. And we've seen time and time again where uh, death, the death review panels and the, uh, the select standing committee have said safer supply is an urgent and essential need along with treatment. Absolutely. Nobody is saying, and nobody who is invested in this from an academic or a scientific level is saying one or the other. This is an all. Uh, we need them all. And, and I would say, <clears throat> with respect to the Alberta data, we need to be really careful when we're looking at fine print on data. So what we report here in BC is suspected drug toxicity deaths every month. Um, the Alberta data is uh, some suspected deaths, but, but many um, of their deaths are still under investigation and not included in the data. So it, we're not comparing apples to uh, apples with with those two data sets. Mm-hmm. That's a very important point that you make. I just want to clarify the numbers here. So you say you have, we have 100,000 people in British Columbia at any given time um, that could potentially be impacted with these uh, unregulated drugs using. I had heard another number today, 14% of, of the deaths that we've had, 14% were they in the downtown east side? Mm-hmm, yes. So yeah, the- and I wanted to yeah I wanted to point that out because you know we often see the pictures of the downtown east side and and politicians like the point of the downtown east side is sort of the the face of the crisis and less than fourteen percent of those who died in our province last year were residents of the downtown east side. Not that the downtown east side isn't a community 
uh, that is vulnerable. That it, it is for sure, and it has had a large rate of death for its small number of um, residents. But the vast majority of people who are dying in BC are dying elsewhere in the province. So they are in small towns and big towns. And, you know, we say this, and I just don't, I'm not sure people understand. This is happening in suburban neighbourhoods, um, as Dr. Henry pointed out today. One in five British Columbians know somebody who's died of a, of a toxic drug event. And so these are our friends and neighbours. Uh, this is a crisis that we really, really need to pay attention to. Um, it's not somebody else in a different neighbourhood. It's in everybody's neighbourhood. And it's really important that people understand how many people are at risk. Are you frustrated at people in positions of authority, perhaps using this uh, for other means uh, in regards to political uh, their, their political needs or what, whether it may be uh, for other reasons, I don't know. But it, certainly it seems to me the fact that you had to come out today as BC's uh, chief coroner uh, or provincial health officer and many other leaders when it comes to uh, health uh, and safety here in British Columbia that actually come out and speak on this, that says a lot about our political discourse and our broader societal conversation on this issue. Yeah, it is absolutely very concerning. This is a health issue, and for it to be co-opted for, uh, I don't know, personal gain, political gain, it's frustrating. You know, we, we as a corner service have been involved in this crisis since day one, and we speak to families daily um, about their losses and about their pain and what they're experiencing. And these are real people. Um, it, it frustrates me to um, see people potentially for their own gain trying to create divisions, trying to um, make claims that really aren't true. And, and we know uh, from all of those who have expertise in this field, that we need a continuum of care. This is a complex health issue that requires a thoughtful, collaborative continuum of care for people. Um, not a dichotomy. This is not an either-or. This is and, and, and what we need. Uh, Ms. LaPointe, thank you so much for your time today. Well, I really appreciate the, the opportunity. Thank you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.